So we're going to be jumping back into the book of Mark this evening. Uh, some pastors often say like their rule of thumb is make sure you have a message that you could be able to communicate if you're riding with somebody in an elevator. So that 10 second window of what's your sermon about and then you just kind of can, can repeat that. I'll be honest, today's text is a little bit long and it's packed with all sorts of stuff so I'm not sure that we're gonna do every question that you have justice but I do hope that we can pull out some relevant uh, truths for our lives this evening and get to know Jesus in, in a closer way. This is Mark, beginning in chapter 8, verse 27. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the word of God for the people of God. So last week, we began to, to turn the page and enter into a new section of the book of Mark. We see in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, there's kind of this uh, new act or new part of the drama that is unfolding. And we looked closely last week at the beginning story that frames this middle section of the book of Mark. In that particular passage, Jesus meets a blind man who is brought to him because of his friends. It doesn't say what their motivation was. It doesn't say how they knew this person. It just says that some people brought this blind man to Jesus and Jesus initiates this healing miracle. Now, what's interesting about this miracle in distinction from every other miracle in the book of Mark is that this was a two-phase miracle. The first time that Jesus spit on his hands and put his fingers into this man's eyes, it didn't yield the results that were intended, perhaps. Jesus said, can you see? And the man said, I see people, but they seem to look like trees. His vision was still cloudy. His vision was still blurry. And Jesus again puts his hands on the man's eyes and asks him again, can you see? And it's only at this stage that the man begins to see things clearly. And some people have seen that two-phase miracle of people moving from 
blindness or even cloudy vision into clarity and to clear sight as a metaphor for what's happening to the disciples all throughout these first eight chapters of the book of Mark. They have demonstrated themselves to be people who just don't get it. So much so that when Jesus is is talking to them, he says things like, do you still not understand? Do you have eyes but you can't see? Do you have ears but you can't hear? It's almost as if these folks have demonstrated themselves to be people that just don't quite understand what's happening. And in this middle section between Mark 8, 22 and and the the later verses in, in chapter 10, it's this continual teaching where Jesus is trying to instruct his closest friends, how to recognize him and what to expect. All up until this point, their vision has been cloudy. Now, there have been moments when it seems as though they understand what's happening. Jesus has done crazy miracles. He's walked on water. He's healed blind people. He's healed sick children. He's relieved people from issues of blood and just different sorts of problems throughout. They've seen Jesus do ridiculous things, and it hasn't quite set in. In the passages that we're looking at this evening, we do see one moment, one instance of clarity that we talked about last week. Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, there's various answers to that. John the Baptist, Elijah, just a prophet, somebody that you know, is doing crazy stuff, but we don't really know how to categorize you because you don't really seem to fit. But then he asks a very pointed question to his friends. Who do you say that I am? And this elicits from Peter a response that kind of makes us proud and we can begin to to smile and see Peter as maybe getting it. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the king. You are the one that we've been waiting for. Now, what we don't understand is that underlying Peter's declaration is all sorts of presuppositions. It's a big fancy word for all the stuff that we bring to the table when we talk about certain things. When, when Peter says, you are the Messiah, he had a very specific understanding of what that meant. In particular, he thought that Jesus was going to be the one who would cleanse the temple, He was going to be the one that would defeat any enemies that were threatening God's people. He was going to be the one that would bring God's justice. As N.T. Wright says, he would be the one that would put the world to rights. Everything that was wrong, the Messiah was going to fix and usher people into this age to come. Peter had all sorts of grand ideas about what Jesus was about and what he was supposed to do. And when he says, you are the Messiah, he's bringing all of that stuff to the table. I want to just kind of preface where we're heading this evening. A lot of times when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about um, faith, when we talk about Christianity and the gospel, there is a litany of presuppositions that we are bringing to the table. There's a whole laundry list of things that we believe Jesus is and what this faith is and how it works and all of these sorts of things. In this particular context, Peter's understanding was incorrect. But the disciples were expecting to Jesus to march on Jerusalem and by whatever means to overthrow the wicked Jewish leadership and the hated Romans. Jesus as Messiah would be the one who makes everything okay. And for an ancient Jewish audience, that would be remove the Roman powers, allow things to be as they're supposed to be. 
Now what's interesting about this is Jesus hears Peter's confession and then he launches into a new bit of teaching. It says he begins to teach them this. This is something that hadn't been taught up until this point. And Mark, over the next couple of chapters, is very pointed about this. This is the first of three times when Jesus talks about what is going to happen to him. He says very clearly and very pointedly, it says um, in our Bibles, that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's him, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. In a nutshell, this is the gospel. For the people that haven't spent a lot of time in church, that might be a term that you've heard Christians use, the gospel. For Jesus, what this seems to symbolize is he's bringing the story of God's people to a dramatic and surprising conclusion. From everything that had begun in the story of the Garden of Eden with sin entering into the world and Israel failing to be the people that God needed them and wanted them to be, In both contexts, Adam and Eve in the garden are depicted as people who are supposed to be reigning and ruling on God's behalf, supposed to be subduing the earth and having power over it. But they don't do that effectively. Israel, in the same way, was supposed to live out as God's chosen people, to be a light to the nations, to to bring people into the fold and to create a compelling vision of what it would look like to fear God and to follow him but they don't do that. Jesus is bringing all of these different threads of Old Testament teaching. He is Messiah. He is the one who was going to suffer. He is, as the New Testament says, God with us. He's bringing all of these things together, but he's doing it in a way that did not make sense at this time because he says very clearly, I'm gonna die. And it's not just a typical death. I'm going to be put to death by the powers and the authorities of our time, but I'm going to rise from the dead. This did not make sense in their world. This did not make sense in their framework of understanding because remember, the Messiah was not going to be that person. The Messiah was going to be the one that kind of destroyed all of the powers that be, not the one that lays his own life down. This gospel that Jesus is announcing for the first time in the book of Mark is different than the gospel that the disciples had expected. I want you to kind of step back into that first century world for a second because for us, this is old news, especially for people that have spent time in church. What Jesus was saying right here, we're like, yeah, of course, that's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to come here to die for our sins so that we can have eternal life. But for an ancient audience, this was completely and utterly radical. They were expecting power, not sacrifice. They were expecting authority, not submission. They were expecting victory, not what appeared to be defeat. Everything that was happening here was completely counterintuitive to what these guys were focusing on. So Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Wrap your minds around that, knowing what you now know. It's like the 12-year-old kid that says, Mom, get over here. I've got to tell you something. Now listen, I really want you to buy me this toy, and I've got 19 reasons why. You need to get your life in check, woman. And the moms in the crowd say, yeah, right, because that's not how that works most of the time. Although there have been some moments, Abe is two years old, and at some time, almost two years old, and at some points you just want to give him whatever he needs to be quiet. And for Abe, that is 
George. Curious George is the solver of all the world's problems in my little son's life where the world is caving in. You just say, you wanna watch George? And he says, George? And that's it. Hops on the couch, turn on the TV, and you walk away. But Kate's already got her head down because she does not want Abe to have lots of TV time. So that's a, a moment of strife here that we'll, we'll talk about as, as we continue to go. But this was something that Peter was trying to have a conversation with the guy that he had just called the Messiah. I wanna get fancy with you for a bit. Some of these Greek words mean something to us. Now, I wanna say that as well. This, this doesn't mean that your English Bibles don't tell you what the Greek means. They actually do a really good job of that, but there is a little bit of depth here that I want you to see. In this first phrase where Peter takes Jesus aside, the use of this verb, it suggests a confidential approach where one is taking the misguided zealot on one side to prevent any more embarrassing outbursts. It's like when that, the kid is going crazy and you just kind of take him off to the side and go try to hide just so that your embarrassment ceases to be. Or you're with that person. I don't know what those terms mean to you, but they just are embarrassing you to, to the nth degree. I'm thinking of like high school girls and their dad shows up at a sporting event or something. I've always had these really grand visions of being the guy who takes beach trips with a Speedo just to embarrass my kids. I'm sorry, move away from that visual. Just move away from the visual. But Peter is taking Jesus aside to prevent any more embarrassing things that he will continue to say. Jesus, this whole bit about you dying and rising, man, that's, that's crazy talk. Come over here, I've got some stuff to tell you. He takes him aside. This is also the same verb that's used for um, some early teachers in uh, the book of Acts, Priscilla and Aquila. I'm really lobbying hard to name one of our kids Aquila. Aquila James, I think that'd be cool. Um, but Priscilla and Aquila were very much uh, the authorities in the early church. They knew their stuff. And in, in Acts 18, there was this guy named Apollos who was teaching, but he didn't quite have it all figured out. So it says that Priscilla and Aquila take him away to further instruct him. This is almost like a patronizing term where they're taking this person out and saying like, you've got some stuff jacked up here, man, and we've got to fix it. So Peter takes him aside. In the second word, it says that he rebukes Jesus. It is a serious confrontation of incompatible ideologies. If you're ever stuck in a situation where you're at a party and somebody is trying to put the moves on you, you can just say something intelligent like, I think what's happening here is an incompatible ideology and you need to get out my face, okay? You can just tuck that one away and whenever it's relevant for you, bring it out. Um, but there's a serious confrontation of incompatible ideologies. Peter over here thinks that Messiah is going to cleanse the temple, destroy the enemies, bring God's justice and put the world to rights. This is something that he believed with passion and with zeal and something that had been deeply ingrained in who he is. But then the guy that they're actually following says, wrong. I'm gonna die. The people, the, the leaders, the authority figures, they're going to kill me. And for Peter and for the other disciples who were there, because it says when Jesus looks at, at the disciples, it's not just Peter, but he's the spokesman for these people. There is a, a moment where these two ideologies are in tension. 
I don't know about you guys, but my Facebook feed is a beautiful place where you can do sociological experiments uh, in the forms of trolling people, where you say certain things just to set them off. Now, I'm not known to do that, but you do see certain things that take place where you have deeply held ideologies on either side. And the conversation that happens is usually not amicable. It is usually not bearing much fruit. Is people just yelling one side to the other and nobody getting any, any closer to resolution. These issues are all over the place and as we see more, let's get political for two seconds, as we see more debates and hear people becoming more entrenched in their own political ideologies, you can see that oftentimes the conversation is not necessarily fruitful. It's things that you've grown up hearing and accepting and, and holding very dearly that are being confronted by another side and that presents a problem. There's a line that's drawn between, oftentimes between you and this person. And those can be political ideologies, they can be theological ideologies where you have big ideas about who God is and what God is doing and who Jesus is and what salvation means and how to follow him that other people might not agree with. You can have philosophical ideologies that kind of frame how you view the world and the, the decisions that you make. And sometimes there's people on the other side. And in this moment, it is Peter's ideology and Jesus is confronting that, saying no. However, Joel Marcus brings this to bear, and hopefully you've gotten a piece of this thus far. We shall never understand this passage rightly if we don't realize how natural Peter's reaction is, modern Christians find the idea of a suffering Messiah unremarkable, but from the beginning it was not so. Peter was saying what everyone was thinking. Jesus was completely radical. Jesus was completely countercultural. Jesus was completely counterintuitive. He was doing the things that nobody was expecting him to do. So Peter steps up to the plate and takes one for the team because everybody around him was thinking the same exact things. Jesus was completely changing the scope of human history. And he had his opponents who were, who were in this, at this time like his best friends it was demonstrating the disciples again to be people that have a lack of a vision of what Jesus was all about and what he was trying to accomplish. And now for us, 2,000 years on the other side, we say, well, of course, that's what he came here to do. But for those people at that time, in that moment, in that specific instance in history, what Peter was doing made perfect sense and Jesus is trying to teach his people. Now, Jesus does that like the good mom does at Walmart when kid takes her off to the side and says, mom, here's 19 reasons why I should have this toy. You need to get your act together, woman. Mom responds in a way that you know, is, is warranted her, and Jesus is responding in a way that is warranted him. It says, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. This is the same word that Peter, when he is rebuking Jesus, Jesus has given it right back to him, and he says, get behind me, Satan. There's been lots of uh, talk about what this clause actually means. If Jesus is talking to himself, if Jesus is seeing um, some sort of a moment of temptation that's happening, it seems more realistic that in Peter's denial of what is supposed to be, he is embodying, this is going to sound harsh, a satanic response. 
oh, Jesus, you, you don't have to do that. There's a different way. There's a better way. This is what Satan seems to do all throughout scripture. Here's the way that it should be, but Satan says, oh, no, there's, no, you don't have to do that. There's a different way. There's a better way. There's an easier way. Don't worry about that. Do something different. So here, Jesus is associating Peter's rebuke with something that Satan would say at this time. He continues, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, Peter, but you have merely human concerns in mind. And this line that separates the ideals of Peter and Jesus becomes that much more deep. Now it's not just competing ideologies like Republican and Democrat. The competing ideologies right here are of God and not of God. This is a huge moment where Peter is, is kind of misunderstanding what's happening and Jesus is using this as a teachable moment to try to instruct his disciples what needs to be. It all leads me to this question or this series of questions that I want to pose this evening from this text. What are our lines? What are the things that we are so set over here that we have held on to tight for our entire lives that might be a misunderstanding and a misrepresentation of who God is and who Jesus is and what our salvation is and what it should look like in the world? What are our ideologies? What are the things that we just, that inform everything about who we are that we have even thought of for some time, the things that we have just accepted and we don't allow ourselves to have fruitful conversations across the aisle. What is our gospel? If we're talking about the gospel on a big scale, it's the good news. What is, for the Christians in the room, what is the good news that Jesus showed up and that he sacrificed himself for us and for the world? And what does that have to do with how we live each and every day? I want to submit to you that for some of us, perhaps, um, we have lost our way and we've ended up on, on the wrong side of the aisle. We've assumed truths that might not be truths. Jesus, in his teaching, summarizes all of this by saying, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Later on in the passage, he says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the gospel. The way that we often talk about it is Jesus Christ is the Messiah, is God, is the suffering servant. That's a lot of churchy terms for basically saying Jesus fulfills and brings to a dramatic conclusion all of the Old Testament. Everything that was supposed to be happening was happening at one time in one person in one series of events. This gospel is bigger than just me and you. This gospel, this story of Jesus changes everything in this world. This gospel, 
the one that calls us to follow Jesus, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow him, is that different than the gospel that we actually practice? Now, I don't want to sit here and just kind of lambast you guys over the head or myself where we say, it's got to be hard, it's got to be hard, it's got to cost you something. If it's easy, then it's not, you're not doing it right. But I at least want to take Jesus seriously for a moment and hear some of the words that he's saying. If anyone wants to follow me, deny yourself. If anyone wants to follow me, pick up your cross every day. If anyone wants to follow me, it will cost you something. This idea of denying themselves, which is trying to encapsulate male and female here, it's saying that this requires saying no to the self. This is not just like those moments in Lent when we stop eating chocolate for 40 days, or those moments in Lent when we stop drinking soda or playing video games or what have you. This is a denial, not just of stuff, but of self. Specifically, the, the denial of self as the determiner of one's goals, aspirations, and desires, it's akin to saying, I surrender all. Everything that I am, every talent, every gift, everything that you have given to me is yours. Every way that you are moving and shaping me, I want to follow you in obedience. Anyone in this time would have heard this phrase about taking up your cross with an image of Roman execution in the background. This was where they had poles planted in the ground and you would take the cross beam and you would pick it up and you would carry it to the site of your execution. And what Jesus is saying here is every day when you're following me, you pick up the cross beam and you head to the death that I have modeled for you the obedience that I have demonstrated in this act of submission and servitude. Denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and following Jesus. It's difficult to do this when these ideologies are so firmly entrenched and we happen to be on the wrong side of them. N.T. Wright says, following Jesus is more or less Mark's definition of what being a Christian means, and Jesus is not leading us on a pleasant afternoon hike, but on a walk into danger and risk. Or did we suppose that the kingdom of God would mean merely a few minor adjustments in our ordinary lives? I want to be very clear with you and very honest with you. I don't always know what to do with that. As I stand here today as the pastor, the one who's supposed to have it all together, that's supposed to have all the right answers and all the right things, I live in this world with vision that is cloudy and lacks focus. What I do know is this. Jesus entered into this world, can understand where we are, understands the things that we go through, understands the struggle and the temptation, the brokenness and the hurt. Hurt that was, that was embodied on the cross as he cried out those words, my God, my dad, my person, the guy that I have been in relationship with for all of eternity, why have you forsaken me? Jesus gets where you are 
Jesus understands the difficulties that you go through. Yet, he lived in humble submission to where God was leading him, knowing that there was a greater good behind it. I don't say that in a callous way to excuse the difficulties that you're going through and to make you feel okay, because on the other side, it'll all be peaches and cream. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. But what I do know is, in Jesus, there is hope. In Jesus, there is purpose. In Jesus, there is worth and there is identity that moves us from our hard-set ideologies that need to be broken and need to be rebuked. We talk a lot here about Jesus and the gospel, and at times I think it might lack clarity, but I want you to hear this very clearly this evening. Because of what Jesus has done for us, because of what Jesus has done for the world, he allows us to partner with him in making it all right again. This is not just a, I'm a sinful, terrible person and Jesus can make me clean. This is that, it's a big part of that, but it goes beyond that to say, and now that I am, I want to do something about it. I wanna pick up my cross and follow him, which doesn't mean I just cease to do the things that I want to do, but it means that you pick up your cross and you help people. It means you pick up your cross and you fight for justice. It means you pick up your cross and you bring the broken and the marginalized and the oppressed and the outcast into your community and into your fellowship. It means that you pick up your cross and you do the hard things. You pick up your cross and you say no to your agenda and your selfishness and your pride and you say yes to where God is leading you. Tonight, I hope that as we think about some of these big, bold terms where Jesus says, Peter, your ideas are akin to that of the devil. If you want to follow me, there's a different way of going about it. It's one of true submission. It's one of true obedience. It's one of true humility. And I hope that when we begin to grasp that, we move from cloudy vision into clear vision and we see the task before us, which is to love people as Jesus has loved us and to do so with a reckless abandon. The only way that this world will be put to rights is through a people that have been so radically transformed and changed that the world can no longer deny the truths that we hold true the ideologies that are beginning to be shaped in understanding that we serve a God of love who has sacrificed himself for us so that we can therefore change the world for him. Let's pray together. God, we ask that we would um, just let your spirit do work this evening and that you would shape us. At times, God, that is difficult and that hurts and that is calling us to say no to the things that we have held on for so long, but this evening I ask that you would begin to give us the courage to move away from some of the things that are keeping us from you. Sinful habits, wrong ways of thinking, allowing us to not write people off that we have already put in boxes where you can't reach them or touch them. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Inspire us where we need to be inspired and help us to do your work each and every day where we deny ourselves, where we pick up our cross and where we follow you. 
Help us to understand your gospel that is not just an individualized message, but it is something that is so radical that it is transforming the very fabric of this universe. Help us to be completely humble that you are asking us and inviting us to be participants in what you're doing. In the things that we say and do and think, we ask that you would take complete control and that you would help us to surrender everything that we have to you and to your kingdom work. God, in whatever way where we need to be broken this evening, break us. In whatever way that we need to be healed and brought to restoration, I ask that you, through the power of your spirit, would begin to mend broken hearts. That people would begin to see hope that is available through Jesus, who doesn't ask us to pick up our cross without knowing what that means or what that feels or what that looks like, but who invites us into that narrative, knowing full well the cost. Allow us to see you in a new way and to trust you with everything that we have. God, we are thankful for who you are and what you've called us to, and we ask that you would continue to use us for whatever it is that you are trying to accomplish. And we ask these things all in your son's name. Amen.